Fuck it sounds about right. I don't know, Cal exit, Cascadia exit, whoever else wants to exit. Whatever. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. And this is Pump Up the Minute. We're talking today about minutes. I scrolled down. 25 to 28. (laughs) (laughs) Which we left off in the middle of Nora's poem, so we get to hear the rest of her poem. And her reading along with the end of it, uh, I don't care what, just do it. Jam me, jack me, push me, pull me, talk hard. And Mark likes that last line especially. He spins in his chair, has a good time, says, I like that. Talk hard. And I like the idea that a voice can just go somewhere uninvited and just kind of hang out. Like a dirty thought and a nice clean mind. I I won't tell you each and every shot in this segment. But I will point out that this segment is basically a really nice back and forth between Nora and Mark, even though they're in completely different locations. She's just listening to his show. When he is dancing, she is dancing. When she walks in one direction, he walks in that direction. And then when they both switch it, like one of them will switch directions, and then the other one will. It keeps framing them doing the same things together. It's very sexual, too. Mm-hmm. Especially the imagery and the home they get very obvious near the end with jammy jack me push me pull me i mean how much more overtly sexual do you want to (laughs) yeah (laughs) and um he says before he goes on maybe thought is like a virus you know it can kill all the healthy thoughts and just take over that would be serious Nora replies even though she's in a different place that would be totally serious and he grabs his uh, cordless phone, says all his horny listeners would love it if he would call up the eat me, beat me lady, but she never leaves a number. And this is actually a good little blocking thing before we get into more serious topics, because he picks up the cordless phone, gets upset that he can't use it, tosses it onto the couch, where it is conveniently there when he collapses on the couch later, so that he can make his phone call to Malcolm from the couch. So it's, it's a nice little setup. Good directing. So, did maybe thought is like a virus? Remind you of Pontypool? Oh yeah, it's it's Pontypool and it's um uh, William Burroughs was that was his thing that words are viruses and thought is a virus because yeah I mean it goes to what we do now with memes the whole idea is but that we using memes for little pictures is they're things that just get passed around put ideas in people's head so definitely and talk radio itself being a virus talk more about this later but Alex Jones. It's a gay QAnon. They're definitely <laughs> viruses that are being spread over the airwaves and catching on with far too many people. Yes. Like just this morning, um, oh well, this weekend, reading about Joe Rogan. Not, well, it's not radio, but same idea, modern idea of podcast saying crap stuff about trans people. And it's all his listeners are going to take that in. Some will disagree, but. Some who either already agree with him will be fueled by it, and some who are on the fence might be pushed into being, you know, bigoted assholes. So it's definitely a virus to get in there and kill all the healthy thoughts, as Mark says. And Joe Rogan currently has the most popular podcast yeah. in the United States and is the one most commonly mentioned by my own students. So, Well, it's it, yeah, it's interesting that his audience is not just... It's all over the place, like politically, age-wise. It's a lot of like college-age people, but it's not conservatives or liberals. It's a lot of each. 
which is why his audience is so huge, mm-hmm. I suppose. Now, to go with the uh, male gaze we've had, finally Nora does say when he when he wants to call her, tough luck creepoid. So she does notice something's being creepy. It's just not the camera. Which is really <laughs> odd. Like, that line strikes me as really odd after she basically well, yeah, simulated she likes sex him. with him. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. jarring. Calling him a creepoid when she clearly likes him and is trying to figure out who he is. And uh, then Mark describes her. Uh, she's probably a lot like me, legend in her own mind. But you know what? I bet in real life she's probably not that wild. I bet she's kind of shy. Like so many of us briskly walking the halls, pretending to be late for some class, pretending to be distracted. And then he talks directly to her. Hey, poetry lady, are you really this cool? Which is just continuing on with the trope. Like, she's a bad girl. She's an artist. But also secretly, she's really shy. In this movie, I think it's sort of... I think the movie is almost trying to say that every teenager has some of that because that's who Mark is. That's Paige isn't shy, but she's got a side of her that doesn't come out. We'll see next segment that Janie is turning into a different person after listening to Mark's show. And I don't know what Malcolm's parents think of him, but he's, they don't seem that worried. He's just like, okay, have it your way. Last time his mother has left his room. We see more of Nora's room, which you like. I think all the stuff on her wall, every inch of her wall is covered by something. Including now we see she has a hot pepper, like a string of lights hanging up. She has lit candles underneath a desk lamp, so we have the movie trope of way too much lighting. Yeah. She has a poster, which I'm pretty sure is Dream from the Sandman comic book, which I had to look it up to double check. It only just started in 89, so that's a fairly new thing, which is cool. She's got a mug with... Japanese characters on it, but I couldn't figure out exactly what it says. And, uh, yeah, Mark says, I feel like I know you, and yet we'll never meet. That's some teen angst right there. They clearly <laughs> go to the same school. Like, yes. The likelihood of them meeting is, I mean, they already did, actually, in the library, so. He's well. putting no effort into figuring out who she is. He could assume, yeah, it's another teenager. We don't know what her other poems sound like. Apparently, previous ones said, eat me, beat me, so. Maybe you think she's, in, like, an actual adult. I doubt it. That sounds more like something a teen would write than an adult. And then he says a famous line from this, so be it. And in the film, we cut ahead, but in the script, you haven't seen this, uh, this scene continues. We've, we're just on Nora in her room. He says, we'll never meet. She says, we'll see about that. And then Mark says, hey, guess what I'm doing right now? She's, she says, I can't imagine. He says, guess, uh, guess what I have in my mouth right now? He says, I'm muffled. She snorts, thinking it's probably something dirty, the script says. And then he says, I'll give you a clue. And there's a click. And the script says, of a gun being cocked? And he says, and here's the biggest clue of all. Blam, a gunshot. Nora starts. She thinks the worst. And we cut to Mark grinning, holding a toy pistol and playing FX of gunshots. And then Mark says, some of you might be wondering, how come my parents let me shoot a gun off in the basement? Well, for one thing, they don't. They have no clue what I do down here, and that depresses me deeply, because any idiot can see I need limits. And then he plays more sound effects of screeching brakes, followed by a crash and an explosion. And then you get to where we are in the in the film with him introducing the song. So basically, he's pretending to play with a gun. So that's a pretty huge thing to take out of the yeah. script. So, and a pretty overt message of boomer parents who have no idea what your Gen X children are doing. Yeah, and- the, the end dialogue, I think, would fit really well with what the movie's trying to say about Mark and teenagers and their parents, but... I think yeah, him playing with a gun right before the what we're about to get wouldn't play very well. Even in 1990, they might have thought better of it. Yeah. 
Now they'd be like, yeah, that's not going in this film at all. Right. Because, I mean, with Malcolm, we don't even see the gun. We hear, we do hear him loading it, but we don't see it. And that's another thing that was getting ready to happen shortly after this film, which is the rise in school shooting. Yeah, we mentioned that briefly before, a few episodes ago, but yeah, it's, they definitely were rising in the 90s, and, you know, we're, like, everyone started noticing them at that point. I don't remember, I don't remember my list of them anymore. After Columbine, I was fairly uh, fluent in school shootings. But I guess in the script even more, they were just making more kind of a pre-shock jock, so simulate masturbation, simulate gunshots, just be like as edgy as possible. Mm-hmm. There's also a chance that once they cast Christian Slater, they thought this scene was a little too close to JD from mm-hmm. Heathers. Like, they didn't want him, him with the gun, even the toy one, because it's too much like the other thing. Because he wasn't their first choice. Their first choice, uh, supposedly was, um, what's his name? Say anything. John oh, Cusack. Yeah. <laughs> I almost called him John Cryer. That's a very different. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, John Cusack. I mean, both in team movies at the time. Uh, and then John Cusack. I forget why he didn't take it. I think I saw something about that, but they got Christian Slater. I wonder how he would have been in that role. Uh, yeah, apparently, I think it was Alan Moyle thought that he had a good sort of cynicism and darkness to him that would play well. Um, I'm not sure where he was getting that in 1990. Yeah. Because, well, he had done Better Off Dead by then, which is a very comic take on suicidal <laughs> tendencies and whatnot. Um Speaking of suicidal tendencies, which we talked about them last time, yeah. <laughs> uh, back to music. This is when Mark, in the script even, introduces a song from his close personal buddies back east, the Beastie Boys. So when he plays the Beastie Boys song, is that before or after we see Miles Davis on? It, we see the Miles Davis tape as he puts in the other cassette. So yeah, we technically see Miles Davis first. So, so we'll have a brief crossover from Pump Up the Minute to Life as a Playlist for a moment, because I was interested in why Mark had a Miles Davis tape, and apparently Miles Davis, along with Africa Bambata and Curtis Blow and Joey Ramone, released a protest song in 1985 titled Sun City, which was number 38 on the Billboard charts. Mm. They wrote the protest song as anti-apartheid of the 1980s and one of the verses the lyrics state our government tells us we're doing all we can constructive engagement is reagan's plan meanwhile people are dying and giving up hope this quiet diplomacy ain't nothing but a joke it's time to accept our responsibility nobody rides for free yes and that fits the theme yeah (laughs) I, I wish it actually said the name of the song on that tape so everyone might catch that. Because you just yes. see Miles Davis, you're thinking of a completely different kind of music. Yeah. And a little more on Miles Davis. He did have an album out in 1989. I've noticed that all of the cassettes I've been able to read has been new music. Like, they've yeah. had music out that year. The record that Miles Davis put out in 1989 didn't chart at all. I haven't listened to it. So... Maybe I will and see if there's anything even more yeah, something right directly then. relevant. But this protest song would fit pretty well with the theme of the show. Miles Davis, for those of you who want to listen to him, also did a really great experimental album called Bitches Brew that he released in 1970. I'm not sure if you've heard of. Heard of. Yeah. <laughs> and that was another top 40 album. It was jazz rock and 
among a lot of critical acclaim, one of the critics says it's a wash of ideas. So it's worth listening, <laughs> worth listening to Bitches Brew. But the focus here, of course, isn't on Miles Davis, but on the Beastie Boys yep. song, which he plays. The Beastie Boys actually began as a hardcore punk band. I don't know if I knew that plays punk music. So mm-hmm. they were a hardcore punk band that they knew each other in the late seventies, but they formed, at least a, a few of them did, formed a band in 1981. In 1982, they put out their first EP. They were already transitioning to hip-hop and rap by 1982. So, of course, they had commercial acclaim with License to Ill in 1986, which was number one on the Billboard charts. The Beastie Boys name is actually an acronym. I'm not sure if you knew that. The Beastie stands for something. (laughs) So, the Beastie in Beastie Boys stands for Boys Entering Anarchistic States. Toward internal excellence. Boys. Yes. A little redundant at the end there, but yes. <laughs> yeah, they might have added the added the boys. They maybe they were beastie, and yeah. so they already had the boys. I don't know. That's <laughs> a weird know. name, beastie. Yes. Fine, beastie boys, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And the beastie boys played with some of the bands that have already been mentioned on the show, like Bad Brains. They toured with for a hmm. lot. Yeah, um, they played with the Dead Kennedys and the Misfits. So Which the, we'll hear about the Misfits next episode. Perfect. <laughs> and some credit Scenario, which is the song here. I could find almost nothing out about Scenario, and I tried to, which is weird because I thought it was a much more popular song than it yeah. apparently was. I, I I was surprised, like, it's not on, like, Apple Music. Yeah, it's not on Spotify either. I have it, and I don't know how I got it. Right. <laughs> I feel like everybody knows that song, mm. but... So if you're a younger listener, just for some reason you don't know it, find Scenario somehow. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Everything's on YouTube. Easy place to find stuff. And Or if you watch this film, which is also hard to find, Mark sings along with the beginning of the song, eh? the first like 40 seconds. And some credit Scenario as being one of the earliest um, gangster rap songs, but others say that the BC Boys stole this song and even some of the beat from a Schoolie D song, which was out a little, um, a couple years prior, and the Schooly D song is PSK, What Does It Mean? So, I know you got to hear both. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> they definitely sound alike. That, 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 I don't know what you call that part of the song, but, I don't know, music terms offhand. So, made me think of what we also talked about, about, like, white commodification of black music. We well, yeah, and then, yeah. like, that one article talking about this song and how, like, things we didn't hear is crediting this with gangster rap when it right. may have just taken it from someone else. That- exactly. There were clearly gangster rap before the Beastie Boys. Um, Schooly D and, and Ice-T. So, so maybe yeah. at best it can be credited with bringing gangster rap to white people, which is what Mark is doing here. It, it, exactly. That is what he's doing. So while you should definitely check out the Beastie Boys scenario if you haven't yet, also check out Schooly D's PSK What Does It Mean and listen to Schooly D's Entitled entire self-titled album which is great and then you can sing along and dance along like mark does by the way he turns on he uh nightlight he says he's got knobs right up in his sound system to control the lighting in his room and in, since we know his last show was only about five minutes long it is 11:45 p.m at this point there's a clock on the desk too so this shows tonight's show has gone pretty long for him a lot has happened that we've just just in the last 10 minutes that we've seen 
He also does have soundproofing up, in case everyone is wondering about, like, why his parents don't realize he's doing more than just talking to friends over shortwave radio. He's got tarps hanging up that look fairly industrial strength kind of things. And his parents wouldn't know that, right? They'd know those are hanging there. They come in the room, but they know, also know he has just sound system alone. He's got multiple stereo things set up, multiple record players. He has a lot of records, a lot of tapes. Why do you think they're I think not- he has two computers, I noticed recently. <laughs> I think it was this segment where I noticed that. Why do you think the parents aren't more concerned or interested? I know the part of the script that was cut out talks about parents not really paying attention yeah. to what their kids are doing. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, that's actually a good question because they, they know he has radio equipment. They know he's smart. And once they hear about this, I mean, it's only at this point that they're, they haven't even heard of this guy yet, of Hard Harry. So maybe they do immediately suspect him because it is pretty quick after everyone heard about him that they do come down in his room and see, like, that's when Nora's yeah. there and he gets away with it because she's his alibi. So, I don't know. And maybe the mother, <laughs> well, the mother definitely thinks he's listening to him. Maybe she knows better. And Mark says, I just love being the rap king of Arizona. Just so, talking about white boys bringing white rap to white audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you are not the rap king of Arizona. He is maybe the rap king of Paradise Hills in a way. Maybe. <laughs> We also get a cutaway right before that line of uh, Paige is now one of the people sitting in a car out in the field, and she's with some guy, not one of the three we saw swarming around her at school, just some other one. So even Paige, as we know, is not just listening at home like she was before, but listening with everyone else. Just in time for Mark to get serious again. Yeah. Drugs are out. Sex is out. Politics are out. Everything is on hold. I mean, we definitely need something new. Just keep waiting for some new voice to come out of somewhere and just say, hey, wait a second, what's That's, wrong with this picture? <laughs> when he gets to that, wait a second, we get a close-up of Paige, like, listening. She's taking this seriously. And in 1990, drugs are out. We have dare, sex is out. We have the AIDS crisis. Politics are out. We've had 10 years now of Republican presidency. Mm. And Gen X is... When you have the collapse of the Berlin Wall and, yeah. like... Soviet Union, and so that changes politics around a lot internationally. Huh. Gen X is really tired of baby boomer hypocrisy. Like the people <laughs> who talked all about drugs and love are now bringing the dare program to them. So yeah. it's like, how are we supposed to take this seriously? And it's not even as if most baby boomers even talk to their kids and said, okay, well, this is why we're doing the D.A.R.E. program, because we had the... So there was no connection to what to their own experiences. We had after-school specials for that. We didn't yeah. need parents anymore. Yeah, so Gen X, those were the latchkey kids, right? That mm-hmm. was the whole thing. So yep. that was definitely me. My parents both worked most of the time, so I would watch my younger siblings after school, and my parents weren't around. The TV was around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only time I could watch it it's like whatever i could find in those hours if my parents were both at work because i wasn't really allowed to watch anything my father wouldn't approve of otherwise which would have been almost anything (laughs) so definitely wouldn't have been watching after school specials if he was home because that would have been liberal propaganda or something i don't know (laughs) and let's see what oh yeah my parents also didn't talk to me about most of what they did in high school. Right. They never admitted to having 
sexual relationships or doing drugs, even though... Mine did not have did. sex until marriage, of course. Well, yours probably didn't. Well, maybe, I don't know, but I don't want to talk about your parents, but I feel like there's <laughs> a chance that's possible. <laughs> um, in, in my case, I'm sure that wasn't true at all. But <laughs> so that's where the hypocrisy came from, is Gen X teens were going through all of these issues, seeing the AIDS crisis, seeing all of these crises playing out and then not being able to talk to their parents about sex. And even in 2020, a lot of kids can. A lot more people are open with their kids about sex and drugs, but just talking to a lot of the college students that I teach, a lot of them still don't have those conversations with their parents. So we also have in terms of talk hard and wanting to address what is happening, what is wrong with this picture that Mark says. We had the fairness doctrine, which how familiar are are you with it? Talk to the listeners about it. I'm just curious what you know, if anything. I can't remember which thing it is now. I know I know it. I've heard of it. It was a policy adopted in nineteen forty nine that required holders of broadcast licenses to do Two things. One, present controversial issues of public importance. And two, to do so in an honest, equitable, and balanced manner. So it required contrasting viewpoints to be presented when discussing issues. Well, the FCC eliminated this policy in 1987, which is shortly before this film would have been written and filmed. Many consider the elimination of the Fairness Doctrine as the reason we have such an increase in party polarization and divisiveness today. There's definitely a correlation between people who identify as extremely right-wing and even more left-wing with the end of the fairness doctrine. Hmm. However, after the fairness doctrine repeal, there was a dramatic growth of the popularity of right-wing radio hosts and shock jocks of the 90s. was it part of the fairness doctrine, the thing where like political candidates got, had to be given equal time if they were on the air? I believe so, yeah, because you had to yeah. present alternate viewpoints as fair and equal as possible. So Sean Hannity started his show, his radio show in 1990. Hmm. Rush Limbaugh also started his show. Yeah, I remember his starting. And Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh are currently the number two and number three most popular broadcast. I, I listened to Rush Limbaugh when he first started. I didn't like him. I moved <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, I did not. But people were talking about him, so I gave it a listen. Despite having an ultra-conservative upbringing, I did not have to listen to Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> My father did listen to Jim Quinn, who was a conservative radio show host mm. in Pittsburgh. He didn't start out that way. He was just a radio DJ. Yeah. But increasingly, after the reveal of the Fairness Doctrine, he started spouting more conservative opinions on air, and people liked that. So he was getting a lot of well, callers. Well, yeah, that's going to get your attention. Yeah. And so once his ratings exploded, they're like, well, let's just give you a conservative yeah, radio show. And Jim Quinn did that show up until a few years ago, and I remember listening to that show. I remember even liking Jim Quinn, but I was very different. Is he the one that dressed like a school. cowboy? I, think, I, think I don't recall that, but that might be a different that guy that started around happen. the same time. <laughs> so Rush Limbaugh celebrated, obviously, the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, and he said 
it was the end, finally, of Marxist liberal media domination. (laughs) We also have a lot of others like Len Beck, Laura Ingraham, Michael Savage, Mark Levine, all increasing all starting audience. Yeah, starting radio shows and getting popular in the 1990s. So by the end of the 1990s, we saw a rise in conspiracy theory shows, which were really propagated or boosted by 9-11, which further eroded public trust. We had Alex Jones getting popular at the... Well, and even in TV, you had X-Files started in, what, 94? So all through the 90s, you're getting a lot of science fiction shows that are about conspiracies. Yes. And there was a liberal talk radio, Air America. I don't know if you... Oh. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't do well. Yeah. It didn't, yeah. It didn't take off at all. I don't know. What do you, why do you think conservative talk radio is so popular, but liberal talk radio is not really a thing? Well, cause what makes talk radio popular like Mark here is when you do outlandish things and say crazy shit, liberal people, as much as conservatives call them crazy, don't say things in a crazy way. Most of the time, Yeah, they're too nice. <laughs> You know, they're accepting of people, and so... Yeah, liberals don't tend to say things like Hillary Clinton is running a child sex ring in the basement of a If you had, if Air America was a bunch of actual, like, Marxists who promoting revolution, yeah, that would have gotten an audience, but that's not what they were going for. Conservatives do complain about NPR being super liberal. Interesting thing to note about NPR, in terms of the people from think tanks that they have, come on their shows there. They did a study over the past decade. I don't know if it was the entire decade, but they found that right wing think tankers were presented on NPR at a four to one ratio of left tank, left wing think tank speakers. So NPR is, and this has been a thing of mine, which I won't get into right now. NPR is not liberal. (laughs) Not anymore. I mean, they definitely have a sort of liberal premise just by being public and but yeah, they have problems. Even their headlines on Twitter recently have been like a, a little too uh, fair, I guess you would yeah. say. <laughs> right. I think one of the, I was going to say greatest, but not great as in yay, but <laughs> <laughs> great as in being able to, being successful at convincing a large part of the American public, even Democrats and liberals in the dem- in the in America that we have a left-wing media bias mm-hmm. when as a professor of mass media who does research using agenda setting theory that is absolutely not the case we don't even have left-wing media really at all we have corporate media in CNN and MSNBC which certainly isn't right-wing but it's not like you can turn on CNN and MSNBC and hear Marxist leftist yeah, ideas. Leftist. They won't even air Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren most of the time or give them very well, little airtime when they were running for president. But that's how, you know, Trump gains support though and how Fox News takes off is by ref- putting that centrist position as, oh, that's horribly leftist because then we don't even hear the stuff that's farther to the left. So Overton window. Are you familiar yes. with the Overton window concept? Yeah. Could you tell us what it is briefly? Because maybe I'll explain it better than I will. Uh, essentially, it's this idea that you, what is politically possible has to be, is at any given time is there's only so far to the right and so far to the left you can go, like the extremes. But that window can kind of be nudged a little bit at a time so that 
however you push it, either through leaders or through media, you can make it so that later you can do more extreme things. Glenn Beck had wrote a whole book about the Overton window and went on rants about it because he thought that that's what Obama was doing is pushing the entire country and what was possible into that leftist thing. But he wasn't, you know, <laughs> he wasn't some Marxist extremist that you don't become president being a Marxist extremist. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren aren't Marxist extremists. They no. would be center politicians in many other mm-hmm. European countries. So we have the Overton window being pushed increasingly to the right to where now Joe Biden, I mean, come on, Joe Biden, and yes, I'm <laughs> voting for him, please do, but is now considered this left-wing radical, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's funny, but that's also scary. He's, like, yeah, he's <laughs> like super compromising centrist, but yeah, he's extremist left, uh, of course. <sighs> anyway, let's go back to the end of the four minutes. Um, Backtracking back slightly right? because yeah. we were talking about uh, um, after school specials. Because he's about to get a spotlight, I wanted to point out the actor who plays Malcolm, Anthony Lucero. He wasn't in much, but one of the other things he was in was an ABC after school special about a daughter who just wanted to be a little more independent. It was called The Less Than Perfect Daughter, which sounds very wholesome. Uh, but then the other thing I didn't want to, I wanted to bring this up before I got too far away because it was the last episode. I was clicking on some other cast members and found out that Ariana Mohit, who played Alyssa, Miss Refinements, last segment, she played Brenda in a pilot for a TV series of Adventures in Babysitting. Along with Joey Lawrence and Brian Austin Green, and I never knew this pilot existed. And it's on YouTube. You should watch it. Did you watch it? I watched the beginning of it, and then I was busy doing notes. Yeah. I haven't watched the rest of it. But it looks like exactly the kind of sitcom that would have hit around, I mean, that was the year before this. This was, That was in 89. So you're catching Joey Lawrence in, what, right before Blossom, I think yeah. it is? But after he was on uh, Give Me a Break and hit Brian Austin Green before he's on 90210. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's an interesting timing thing that it didn't get picked up. But yeah, she missed refinements, played Brenda. But uh, back to the present, this segment, we're going to get Malcolm because Mark reads his letter. Dear Hard Harry, do you think I should kill myself? And Mark says, great. Signed, I'm serious. And of course, there's a number here, my luck. And then he picks up the phone, which is conveniently on the couch from him throwing it there earlier. And we cut to Malcolm. Uh, it's a different angle of his room. So we get to see his... Blue computer screens, in case we, you know, make that visual match. Yes, right. this is the kid who typed the letter. I really wanted letter. to read it, but I just couldn't make out. Whatever's on the screen, I, on yeah, the it's screen. not much. Yeah. It's not his letter, because no. that would have been a while ago, at least a few days. Uh, he's got his radio there. He's got pictures on a corkboard on the wall. He's got two dictionaries and two other books next to him. I couldn't figure out what they were. One of the pictures I could make out was him as a little leaguer. Yeah. He's in a baseball uniform. <laughs> so either he was different as a kid and enjoyed sports or was forced to play sports as a kid. Either way, having changed to who he is now or being forced to be who he is still, he's not happy, as we'll hear. And his phone rings and he takes off his glasses before he answers it, which I thought was a nice little moment. That's like really when you want to focus on Mm -hmm. something. Yeah. (laughs) And so then Mark says, hello, serious? He says, yeah. Are you okay? Yep. I guess what I'm asking is, how serious are you? And says, Malcolm doesn't answer yet. Says, well, how are you going to do it? And Malcolm says, I'm going to blow my fucking head off. 
And Mark gets a little too excited by this because we just we did just hear the story he was upset was uh, fake last time. He wants crazy things to happen. And he says, oh, well, do you have a gun? And Malcolm says, no, I'm going to use my finger, genius, which Mark kind of appreciates the sarcasm. He's like, all right. So where is this going to take place on? When Malcolm says right here, you can tell that Mark just switched in like a few seconds from being excited about this to realizing this kid means it. Yeah. So Mark asked for everybody to spill all of his trauma, but this is the first time he's actually presented with yeah. a real trauma, and uh-huh. he doesn't really know how to do it. And so this segment ends with Mark saying, where is this alleged gun, huh? And we will get more of their conversation. Well, it's not much of a conversation as it goes on, because Malcolm doesn't say much else. Actually, he might not say anything else. This is almost end of the scene. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm does have a couple more lines, but Mark has most of the words in this conversation. But we can talk about that next time. You can hear more of me, by the way, on... Ooh, what show do I have? Gun Suicide... I don't think I have any movies where they commit suicide. I mean, he almost does in Dave Made a Maze. It's not at all a dark film like this with serious political topics, but it is an interesting exploration of like the creative process. So I'll mention Dave Made a Minute, which involved me and a whole bunch of other podcasters, and Sarah was on one episode talking about a movie that most of the podcasters had not seen, because that's how it went. You can look up Dave Made a Minute on social media or go to lemmingdrops.com for links to that and... You can hear Life as a Playlist, which is my top 40 mixed with music history and social commentary and autobiography. And you can follow Life as a Playlist on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speak out! They can't stop you! Find your voice and use it! Keep this thing going! Pick a name! Go on the air! Your life! Take charge of it! Do it! Try it! Try anything! Say shit and fuck a million times if you want to, but you decide. Fill the air, steal it, keep the air alive. And follow Pump Up the Minute on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you go to the Twitter, especially, we talk politics. Yes, join our Twitter page and talk politics to us as we head into the election. The election. Yep. Talk hard. <laughs> Everybody knows,